welcome to another episode of Movie Mumble, your monthly movie exploration and discussion podcast. I'm your host, Scott Murray, and I'm joined by my three stalwart adventuring comrades, Joel Lewis. Howdy. Tim Gerard. Hello. And Zeke Perez. Hi. For those of you unfamiliar, <laughs> Movie Mumble is a monthly podcast where the four of us uh, pick a movie, watch it, and then talk about it. And it's, it's just that simple. That's it. The basic idea is that we get more out of our films when they're shared with people whose company we enjoy. We found that to be very true through the course of our podcast. Every month, we uh, switch up who chooses the movie, so we all choose in order. And we announce at the end of each episode what we're watching next month, so you can watch along with us if you'd like. We also don't work hard to withhold spoilers from anything we talk about. We do tend to summarize plots, so if you're worried about that sort of thing, please watch the film for an episode before you watch that episode. Uh, this month, I was our movie selector, and I chose Super 8, one of J.J. Abrams, I want to say, earlier films. Feels it's his earlier. third film. I, I, didn't, yeah. it, I thought it was his first blockbuster, but it is not. Yeah, it, it feels... That counts as early, I think, yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. Were, the, what were the first two? So, uh, Star Trek was the second, and the first was Mission Impossible 3. Hmm, Okay. Oh, I keep forgetting he was involved in Mission Impossible 3 at all. With a cameo by Felicity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then he had done TV stuff leading up to that. So I normally I'd ask the movie selector to explain a little about the film, but I've already done the whole introduction. So instead I want to ask (laughs) the three of you to start. What did you know about this film before we watched it? Well, I'll I'll start. Very little. Um, I had heard Spielberg-esque. I had heard E.T., but more fucked up. Um, from, from you, Scott, in particular, you were kind of like, it's Spielberg-esque with that kind of childlike innocence, but things go a lot more wrong. Um, so that was kind of, I, I was under the impression that a lot of this was going to be like handheld. Um, just from, I, I, that was something I guess I projected onto it, pun. Um, but the idea of Super 8 being such an important, like, to be the title of the film, it seemed like that was the mode through which we were going to view it, but it tends to be this this second plot going on. So going into it, I, I didn't really, I, I had the sense that it was going to be Spielberg-esque and I, that there was, it. that was basically it. I knew, I, and I had heard about the train crash from you, Scott, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Just, I think it was a, a situational recommendation where yeah. involving some kind of vehicular Thing. That sounds about right. Yeah, that's yeah. a beautiful scene. Yeah. So I knew it was coming, but I was, I mean, we, we will talk about that. But that's, mm-hmm. that's where I'm at. What about you, Tim? You'd seen it. Everybody had um, seen it but me, right? Well, I think so. Well, I heard it was Nicolas Cage and snuff porn. I said, you had me at Nicolas Cage and snuff porn. Then I realized, wait, no, not 8 millimeters, Super 8. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, yeah, so I thought I you were just going to stop there. Up. I thought that was going to be your whole thing. <laughs> I mean, if I didn't already have a story, I would have. Um, so actually, the, I had seen it before once. And it was, it was really weird kind of how, how it came into my life. It was back when I was in Rhode Island. Um, and things were, before I moved out here, things were, were terrible with my, my last girlfriend. And one year for my birthday, she, she bought me this movie. And it was like all she got for me. And I remember it was sort of at the point where I was like kind of looking for like any last like embers of, of hope in our relationship. Please and I was like, oh, there's going to be oh, something in this that's like, <laughs> yeah. And I remember watching it being like, 
why the fuck did she give this to me? You know? And, and I feel really bad because it's like, I didn't watch the movie just kind of accepting it for what it was. Like I had a ton of like otherworldly expectations for it, which is, which is not fair to the film, you know? Um, I'm sorry to uh, be laughing you know, at your past paid, but that's just, no, perfect... that's fine. I, <laughs> what, what if there's enough time to watch a movie? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe this is well, and that was the secret thing. message he's tried to send to me. <laughs> yeah, and, and that was the thing. It wasn't like even like we 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 watched it together. Like I ended up watching it by myself, and then like I remember because she, you know, before she gave it to me, she was like, "Oh, I watched this, and I thought you would like it." And I remember at one point being like, "Wait, you watched this, but with it, did you watch it with the other guy you were banging? Like, is that is that what inspired you to like <laughs> like what the fuck?" So. Um, but enough time has passed because comedy is tragedy plus time. So it is funny now. So that's okay. <laughs> and liquor. So, um, yeah, yeah. But, um, but so it was, I was glad to have a chance to watch this again with enough time in between and uh, sort of in a new and much different context, you know? Um, so, so that was the thing is I was watching it again for the first time. Um, and I, and I remember very little about it too. So that was kind of good. Like I remember there was the train. I remember, you know, the, the, the basic idea of it. And, um, and yeah, I think it's been, it's been tough too, because I feel like it's, it's caught a lot of flack and I haven't been able to kind of really like get in the conversation about it because it was so long ago. I couldn't remember it. So again, I'm glad to kind of be like, okay, this is what people were talking about. Okay. Let's, let's have this conversation. So, so yeah, this was my, it was almost like it was new. There were a few things that I think I actually confused stuff from Stranger Things with this film. Because I think I remember being like, what about that part? And I was like, oh, How am I thinking of Stranger that? Things? How like, could you possibly make yeah. that connection? Uh, yeah, I, I have no idea. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's my story. It's super. And I still own it. I didn't throw that throw it out in anger or anything. I was like, I'm going to keep it. But, yeah, my first time seeing it was just kind of like, what, what is this even? <laughs> like, how are you? What about you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had seen it before too. Um, you know, same thing. It's been a while. Uh, but yeah, I think for me going to see it, I think it was just one of those summer blockbusters, right. That I went and saw with some friends and, um, you know, enjoyed it. Uh, you know, it was one of those that I didn't particularly remember everything about it, right. Going into it again the second time, but watching it again, like certain scenes, like the scene where they're filming um, their movie and then the train derails, right? That all came back to me and um, little snippets from the end came back to me, kind of how the characters acted came back. So um, yeah, one that I had seen and and enjoyed, just hadn't seen more than once. So it, it was good to go back to it for sure. Yeah, that's good. I'll keep the summary quick again, because I've done a lot of talking already, but Super 8 is about a, uh, mostly about the one main character, but him and his group of friends, they're filming, they're making a film. They're making their own film for a film festival. They love movies. And while they're filming at a train station, a train going by gets derailed and crashes horribly and something breaks out of the train. And the government comes looking for it to clean up their mess because it's alien, of course, shocking. And they have accidentally captured footage on their camera. So there's a whole interweaving of like the kids and their personal lives and them trying to make their movie and then the whole alien thing and how that affects the town. And then the adult characters on top of that having their own separate but parallel lives with the children. And it, I mean, it sounds like what you said, Joel, I think about your, your 
anticipated descriptor of um, ET but darker is is kind of right. Honestly, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, less friendliness and a lot more not getting to look clearly at the alien for a very long time. I first discovered this when it came out. Just you know, nothing, no fancy story here, nothing interesting to tell. It came out. There were ads. I said that looks good, and then I went to see it. <laughs> that was it. And it was good, and that's it. Um, this was the first time I'd heard of J.J. Abrams, clearly, and remembered it. I mean, you know, maybe his name had come up somewhere else, but this was the one. It was like, oh, yeah, this is a film by this guy. Every, people are talking about him and about how they think he's going to be one of the hot new directors. You know, okay, great. And I remember reading about, I mean, maybe this was after the fact, but somewhere on the internet about that he was very heavily inspired by these Spielbergian type, you know, uh, you know, the ETs and the, the Goonies and that sort of kids adventuring through things larger than them and that kids aren't meant to deal with type of genre, which is fair. I mean, I saw a bunch of those thanks to Blockbuster anyway, right? They're great movies. Um, and he had wanted to pay, um, pay tribute, make an homage, you know, put his own spin on that tale and tell it and sort of tell his own. That was great. And everyone, every interview I read and article I read seemed to take that as he's going to be the next Spielberg and just emulate him, which is not what J.J. Abrams ever said once, by the way. So, so then when he moved on to the things after Super 8, there was this very odd sort of like, oh, this movie's really good. We were right about J.J. Abrams. What the hell is this? This is totally different from before. What is he doing? <laughs> like dichotomy and... Of course, he's done a lot since then. You know, he's got his hands all over some famous franchises, you know, all kinds of stuff. And we'll, we'll talk more about his career later. But at the time, it was just another really good film. And I was sort of reminded how long it had been since I'd watched that kind of classic kids' adventure movie at all. You know, whether one of the originals or something newer or anything. And, and it, you know, really perfectly encapsulated the feel of those films for me. And then the more, the more J.J. Abrams did and all the many places his career went, the more I thought back to my introduction to him of Super 8 and went just, man, you know, that didn't have any broader universe to connect to or he didn't have to pick up a plot that someone else started. Like, he just got to tell a single story and it went great. And I think Cloverfield did the same, the first one at least, right? And I, I sort of find myself these days yearning for him to do another one-off because of super eight so yeah that's how i got into it <laughs> well and, and you kind of bring up something too that i've always kind of struggled with with him too is like i feel like he's there's a lot of stuff he's produced like i think cloverfield mm -hmm. i think he produced it but i don't think he had much like creative involvement like in terms oh, of writing or directing you know I don't so it's know. like it's one of those you're, you're totally right yeah and like I remember like watching Cloverfield because I saw his name on it. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Cloverfield, but I remember kind of being disappointed, like, oh, that, that wasn't a JJ Abrams joint. That was just, You're you know, right. something where yeah. he like, you know, I, he must have said like this looks like a good idea. I want to make sure this film gets made. But, you know, I don't know how much of it was like his his stand. No, you're you know? right. Yeah, he didn't direct that. Yeah. It's really interesting with the first three films. I mean, even the fourth, because his fourth was into the into darkness or whatever the second uh star trek oh, star reboot trek. Yeah. film i i mean to do i i had seen mission impossible 3 like that was his first movie that i had seen and i really liked the mission impossible franchise like even back to the original like i really liked the original 
And the second one is John Woo, just amazing, <laughs> crazy, totally different genre. Doesn't even compute, right? Like that movie is its, is, is its own thing. Um, but what I remember a lot about Mission Impossible 3 was like, it was kind of a callback, a throwback to kind of this earlier espionage, twisty, kind of hearkening back to the first one. In the same way that his two Star Trek films are, are very much homages to and twists on the first or uh, at least wrath of khan for his dark the darkness one but just kind of the trajectory of these films is kind of taking these these properties and kind of hearkening back and kind of doing a little like breathing some new life into it and i kind of read the same kind of thing into this film it was a spielberg-esque coming-of-age tale with sci-fi shit going on. And it was very much in the same vein. It was, it, I don't know if I ever tracked that trajectory before. So it's like, of course, this is the dude that does Star Wars when it comes back. Like, it just, it seems to be what he does well or unwell, depending on the movie and depending on your fanboy. Repackage nostalgia. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's, it was just, I don't think I'd really put it together that, he's kind of got a history and I, I mean, I'm only referencing what five or six films of his, I, I could do the, the boring thing on the pad, podcast and look it up, but Oh no, that's it. <laughs> it's those. Yeah. yeah. Now that I'm, I'm looking at his writing and directing credits, there's not a lot here. Mission impossible it's... three, star Trek, super eight, star Trek two, star Wars, and then star Wars. And that's that for directing. Yeah. Yep. Man, I'm so I, he's well, he's managed to attach his name very effectively to to a lot of things. Obviously, film, film wise, I mean, what he did yeah. as a, a television writer and director that's that's a different category. I mean, mm. Alias is yeah. a very it's its own genre essentially. Like that that kind of show really didn't quite exist before. But I don't really have much experience with his TV stuff in the same way. I don't really, I haven't watched a lot of Joss Whedon's and that's the thing. I kind of get both of them kind of confused. I think they, they're kind of synonymous as they're like fixers or rebooters. They kind of bring these things back to their, their initial spirit. I don't know if I'm just talking out of my ass, we, <laughs> but <laughs> that's kind of the sense. I well, I, I never, I never, I never saw Felicity, but I like, I was a huge fan of Alias. And I mean, I did come to it late, but, you know, to me, that was kind of when I first got on the the J.J. Abrams train, you know. And um, and I think that was part of what led to, well, you know, and another one I think is Lost, where I don't think he was as big of a creative control as I originally thought. Like, I think he wrote the script for the pilot, maybe. And I think, again, he was probably a producer. But I think that was mostly run by Dan Lindelof, I think. So, so again, like that was sort of his name got me into Lost. And Lost was kind of, you know, I, I stayed with it for reasons, not just because of him. But, but yeah, I definitely knew him more from TV. Um, and then even, I'm almost, well, also wondering too, because I know that Fringe kind of picked up. And that might have been something that he was involved in too. But then again, I don't know if he was the creative, you know, the, the, the show runner or a producer on Fringe, you know, so that's another thing. So, so his name definitely got me into a lot of, lot of stuff that whether or not, you know, whether or not I actually like his writing as much as I think, I definitely have the same taste as him because all the stuff that he's like, yeah, let's get that made. I'm going to produce this. I'm going to produce that. Like I ended up liking it, you know, um, 
but, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting to kind of look back and say like, well, which ones were, did he actually have that control over before he got into making films, which was just, yeah, like kind of rebooting other stuff. Um, and I remember, I remember with Mission Impossible 3 also, like I, I really didn't like Mission Impossible 2. Um, so really? it was great to kind of see. Yeah. That surprises I, the hell out of me. <laughs> I think it's because, okay, I'll, I'll go on record as saying I don't like Tom Cruise as an actor, but I feel like oh. with the right director, they will rein him in and make him right. incredible. See, I don't and like him Mission as a Impossible person. Mission Impossible 1 was one of those films. Yeah. That's fair. No, yeah. But that's, like, that's I feel, yeah. But like, I feel like with Mission Impossible 2, he went full Cruise. And it was just like, <laughs> nope, didn't like it. But then with three, he was kind of reined in again. And I, I also love that with three, you know, they kind of did like with Scream, where with Carrie, you know, I mentioned before, Carrie Russell being in the opening, you're like, oh man, like this is J.J. Abrams, this is Carrie Russell, they're back together. Oh my God, she died in like the first 10 minutes. Like it was, it was like the beginning of Scream with Drew Barrymore. You're like, fuck, like no one is safe in this world, you know? And it, it, add, it added like stakes, like right off the bat. And um, so yeah, that, that definitely kind of like, yep. You, you sold me, you know, again, like I liked the first one. So I was glad that the franchise was kind of like revitalized, you know? Um, and then what it's become after that is a completely different animal. Like that series is so it, it's become fast and furious and bond, but as a vehicle <laughs> yeah. for, and pun again, for Tom Cruise, that's triple puns, <laughs> fast and furious vehicle <laughs> cruise. They work better if I explain them. That's that's what I've found. Before we get too deep into J.J. Abrams, should we touch on your favorite scenes out of the film? Well, should we talk first impressions? Because I feel like I or, right, we talked about sorry. like going in. Uh, sorry. No, you're right. I I was sitting here going. I feel like there are two things we do, and one of them is favorite sections. But I can't remember the other thing, so I'm just well, going to say favorites. You had, you had like expectations, which I liked. I liked that as kind of the journey to the discussion. Since I'm talking, I will do my first impressions. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> please, well, first you were right. It was first impressions. Yes, please. <laughs> so, so going in, I kind of had this idea that it might have been handheld, and I was worried about getting motion sick. My first couple of notes is like, oh my god, am I going to throw up because this is handheld? Ended up not being a problem. I this is the the opening shot is outstanding. Um, just zero days without an accident with the somber music just really plugs you in. I I mean. For for the most part, like the first seventy five percent of this movie, I'm just like everything about this makes me happy. It just is pushing all of those n nostalgia buttons, borrowed nostalgia buttons. It feels like Goonies, which I've never seen, but I know the feel of. It feels like Stand by Me, again, a movie I've never seen of, but I I know I've seen scenes of. I know the tone of that. It feels like E. T. It feels like all of these kind of, and it's Stranger Things. I mean, Stranger Things could be an Elseworlds, another part of this universe. They, they would meld so easily. It's the same aesthetic. It's the same tone. It's the same kind of thing. Um, kind of shameless. I don't know how, does, is JJ at all involved with Stranger Things? Because I think he has a lawsuit to, to level. <laughs> um, I think they could both exist. I think they're different enough that they're not exactly the same. But it was just, it just, it felt familiar in that kind of borrowed nostalgia way. This is a lot of the movies that I grew up watching, similar tones, similar framing of shots and similar set dressing in the background from that era. Um, it's just, it, it was really enjoyable. In the back half, you kind of get a sense of like, it seems, I think JJ should have had the script 
run through another part of the, like a little bit more edits. There's some contrived things that didn't really seem just like we need more explosions here. So how do we get that eh, random? Um, and then it's, it uh, kind of towards the end, there's a little bit of, it's kind of overly saccharine in its ending, um, which is, I don't know if that's just a, a, it's something I excuse about Spielberg films because I watched them as a kid initially, but I'm also unsure who the, the target audience for this film is. I think that's something else we can get into. But overall, like it was just a really fun watch. I was, I was enjoying it through the whole thing. It's just like, I enjoy this. I enjoy that song. I enjoy this dynamic. I, and I think it was really solid kind of the, the way they, they drove child acting and it it's it felt like how kids interact with talking over each other as irritating as that can be for like following the content of the story i think that was really true to life um it it's i don't know that we get a lot of these kind of films centered on group of girlfriends i'm kind of sick of seeing seven boys in a thing and the one feature girl who's kind of this token who's I mean, Elle Fanning is fucking incredible in this film. She is worlds better than everybody else on screen, and you see that. Like, it, it's it's no, lo- it's not that she's an underwritten part. It's just watching this. What I was thinking is like, why don't we have any of these stories about girls? Why don't we have that? And it, I, that was something that just kind of made me think. There's a lot of this cast and this kind of story around this kind of testosterone. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and that's, you know, the story he's emulating. No, absolutely. Which, I, I, yeah. I'm just saying, like, if, if I'm going for another one of these, I don't know that I'm picking up the same thing again, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Movie Now and Then, I think I deals with it's like four girls and it jumps back and forth between when they were kids and when they were adults. And okay. like Christina Ricci and a bunch of other young actresses, but then it has like older actresses who like play them as adults and stuff like that. Um, check that out. I mean, it doesn't get into the, the peril that, that these movies right. do, but it, it was definitely think, like, I like, remember my sisters being into that. Gotcha. It made me think of Paper Girls, the, the image comic series, which is time travely and timey-wimey and sci-fi and it's it's about these girls who have a paper route and they get this huge sci-fi shit happens and they have to cope with it through time it's great it's it's something that eventually i think will be adapted i guess that's the itch but there should be there should be as many girls i mean there were girls in the 70s and 80s like and they had the same amount of not enough time or not enough to do during their time you know like same kind of boredom. Yeah. So. Well, plus it's not like this shit was actually happening to groups of boys where there were fucking like aliens and monsters. <laughs> and, you know? So it's like, if you're, you're telling a fictional story. You know? right. So do you, you kind of touched a little bit already, Tim, on your first impressions, I guess, from mm. ages ago. Do you have a, a re-impression from now? <laughs> so it was, it was definitely a better, better impression. Um, you know, and I guess as unfair as it is, like, you know, again, it was, it was kind of um, preempted by Stranger Things, even though Stranger Things came after this, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I definitely do appreciate this, this kind of genre now. Like, even though it took place when I was only a year old, um, you know, it still had enough of the look of what, what would, what the 80s did look like. So, you know, it wasn't, I didn't recognize as much of it, but it was still, it felt closer to home, you know, than, um, 
you know, than, than watching something that would have taken place in the sixties, you know, like that, that's, that stuff is so much farther removed for me, but, um, so yeah, so there was definitely like this, this nostalgia, you know, for, um, and, you know, and that's one of the things I think is interesting too, like seeing that sort of, you know, the, the age difference where like, I feel like people have nostalgia for movies that were actually made during that time that they watched as kids, you know, but it's like, it's, it's, it's already, you know, past, you know, or is it like, yeah, like that was, that was when I lived, that was when I grew up, you know, my, a lot of my, my formative years were during the eighties, you know, and then, you know, into the nineties when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12, you know, at that point, but, um, but, you know, that's, you know, again, so I wasn't their age at that point, but, you know, probably I would have been in their shoes, you know, towards the end of the eighties, you know, um, so that was kind of, that was kind of nice to be brought back to, to that. And I mean, obviously I never had adventures like that. Um, even, even without the monsters, like I was an indoor kid, you know, it's like, so I was, I, you know, I was, you know, watching movies like this, although when I was younger, I get scared very easily by movies. So it's not like, like, I don't think I saw Goonies till I was like maybe a teenager, you know, like, I remember seeing parts of it in the part, like when she's trying to put, um, put his her fing his fingers in the blender. I was just like, no, nope, fuck it, I'm out. Like, I'm not watching this movie. Like, you know, um, so so yeah. So like, as a kid, I wasn't necessarily adventurous. You know, like I barely could ride a bike. I wouldn't just get on a bike and go ride with my friends. So so there are those parts that kind of don't really connect with me. But more, I remember the the scene when um I forget the kid's name, but the one who's the filmmaker when he's in his room, just like looking through all his shit for that magazine to give to him, like here, read this art. And he's just got like toys and stuff everywhere. It's like, okay, that, that was me growing up. That was it. You know, just having the, the toys and playing with toys and having the imagination. And, you know, I sometimes wonder too, you know, when you hear about, you know, see a film like that, or, um, you know, hearing about like M night Shyamalan as a kid, like making movies with his friends. It's like, like, why, why wasn't I a filmmaker when I was a kid? Like, that seems like something I should have been doing. And I just, I don't know if I think the technology wasn't there. Like I remember one time when I was maybe 10 or 11, my dad rented a video camera and it cost like hundreds of dollars for a days, a day or two, or something like that. So he could make some home videos but it's like, it wasn't like we owned a video camera that I could just take and film all my friends. And even if he did, it's not like I could leave the house with it, you know? Right. Um, but like, so that, that part of it really kind of connected to me as almost like, Oh, what my childhood could have been, you know, that, that type of thing. And, you know, um, so I, I really loved that. Um, I, I really liked, and I don't know if this is too early to make this comment, but one of the criticisms I remember hearing of this is that, you know, it's supposed to be based on these Spielberg films, but how, how kind of terrifying it was, you know, in terms of like the monster killing people towards the end. Um, and I think part of what I realized too is like, I don't think this movie is for children. Children who are children now watching this film are not going to get it. They're going to think it looks weird and out of place. It is, it is for nostalgia. It is for the people who are, our age who watched these types of movies when they were kids and probably couldn't have handled the violence then. But now it's like, well, now you're an adult. You can, you know, we can make this a legitimate like horror film, but with kids as stars. So you have the, you know, that extra layer of, of, of peril that the kids are in because they're just kids. But, you know, you don't have to sort of soften it by being like, Oh, like, uh, wasn't that one of the things they did with ET where towards the end, 
um, they went back and edited out that the agents had guns and made it so they have flashlights instead, you know, cause it was like, mm. you know, we, you know, we didn't want the kids to, you know, we don't want these adults being like, Oh, I'm going to shoot this bunch of kids on bikes. You know, you know, it had to be, you know, kind of, kind of softened for, for children. And that was the thing I saw ET in the theater when I was a child and it scared the shit out of me, you know, cause it was like, you know, that he scene when he's walking the through the cornfield. That too. Fuck. Yeah, you know, and all of a sudden he just like puts the flashlight and he's like screaming at it. And I was like, oh my God, why why would my parents do this to me? <laughs> you know? That's a movie I didn't see um, the end of for ages. Because the second he goes out to check the, the trash cans and that fucking cat, which is such a horror trope, yeah. right? But it, yeah. it's just like that terrified <laughs> me. I didn't want to see the rest. I don't care about no alien with a glowing finger. I'm scared out of my mind. Yeah. So yeah, so that was really nice for me. Just I guess the, the you know, long story, short story long the the idea of being able to watch a movie like that as an adult and and to not be scared off by it and miss out on all the sort of sweet moments um plus one of the things i did notice is a lot of the the heart of the film is i don't i don't think a lot of kids would get you know the idea of the kid losing his mom and kind of how he deals with that and how his father is dealing with it like like a lot of those things kind of, I think even went over my head the first time, you know, like I didn't realize how important that was, you know, besides like just kind of setting the scene, but, but the connection where the, you know, where the kid makes the connection with the alien at the end, you know, and it's like, you, you can still live, you know, and it was just like, like, God damn, like what 10 year old kid is going to make that connection, you know, that like, oh, okay, it's because his mom died and he's still dealing, you know, and so, so I think that was part of it too, is like, uh, you know, I, 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 yeah, I watched it as, as an adult and it made sense as an adult watching a movie about kids, but I don't think it's a movie for kids to be watching about kids. You know? What about you, I like that. Yeah. Um, so I think my second impressions are that, you know, it stood up really well. Um, I, you know, I remember enjoying it. I enjoyed it again this time. I do think that, and I'm not sure, I'm guessing it probably would have been the same, but at the end of last episode, we kind of planted that seed. And I can't remember, but it just came up about wondering how much it'll be like Stranger Things now that we've seen Stranger Things or how much Stranger Things will be like it, I guess. Um, and that was all, I don't want to say distracting, but because I still enjoyed it, but like, it kind of was like, noticing all of the similar things right you've got uh set in a small town this one late 70s stranger thing in stranger things in the 80s group of kids doing fantasy related things right so they're making a zombie movie in stranger things they're playing DD and talking about that and you get a creature that shows up um it, that's not really shown much is revealed as you go you get some weird technology acting up you've got a local deputy who's got a relation to the kids and he's starting to look into it but then he's butting heads with the federal agency investigating it. Like there's all these things that just throughout, I was like, Oh shit, this is, it's the same thing, but you know, paced as a movie. And <clears throat> I, I really did enjoy how this one unfolded. Um, same way I enjoyed how stranger things as a show unfolded over the seasons. But I, I enjoyed that. <clears throat> Joel, you mentioned you get the, you know, days without an accident sign. And then you get Alice telling Joe, Hey, you know, I'm sorry. My dad worked at the mill too. And, that's all you get. And then half an hour later, she says, you know, they're having their heart to heart. And she says, yeah, my, you know, my dad called out and your mom had to go and take a shift. And, you know, that unfolds over time. The story of the creature unfolds over time, right? They, they see their teacher at the train crash site. And, um, you know, then 
down the road, you get the video of him in the lab talking about what the creature was. And I don't know, just everything like the seeds that were planted really grew out as you watch the movie. So, um, yeah, I think as, as a movie, I, I enjoyed that even though I was distracted by stranger things stuff, but, um, you know, pretty, like, like you all said, pretty heartfelt. Um, same thing for me. I think the closest connection I had to it, cause I wasn't making movies as a kid, um, but it kind of reminded me of, uh, some of my friends were in a filmmaking elective in high school and we made a little movie and just kind of the imagination that comes with that, albeit at a different age and albeit, uh, the kids were much better at making a movie than, than my high school friends and I were. <laughs> um, but I don't know, it's, it's just that nice coming of age story that hits home for all the reasons you guys mentioned, whether you, you know, lived it or not, right. I wasn't growing up in the eighties or seventies. So, um, you know. But from the movies that I've seen in my childhood, it was nice to go back and connect with them through this. So I, yeah, it, I, I really enjoyed it. And I think, I think, it's, I think it's a good one. It's definitely yeah. something watching. I'm like, I, I also was like, why wasn't I making movies? And I have one, like my parents would always feel like we had like home movies. And one time I had my dad, I wanted to make like a, a Batman story with my toys. And I call it the Iceman Never Sleeps because I had Arnold Schwarzenegger with his, <laughs> his freeze gun. And it, it was awful. It was just terrible. And I think uh, part of it was like I, I didn't go out and hang out with friends a lot. So th there was no community. It was just me bouncing my ideas off my own brain. So it didn't really evolve into anything. Um, but it was definitely like watching this, like, God, how much fun would that have been to just run around and like, oh, that place is cool. They had like a lighting rig and they had makeup. I really like that aspect, like watching a, a, a tiny little Savini prototype doing zombie makeup. That was so cool. Like, mm -hmm. I was so pleased. I was really hoping for the end to have their film over the credits. <laughs> I was like, oh, if they don't show us that, I'm going to be really disappointed that they had it offset. I was like, oh, that's perfect. That's great. I don't know and that I could make that quality of a film now. <laughs> yeah, the kids right. film either, right? It's, it's, the kids are great at acting, as, acting like kids who are acting exactly. like kids. <laughs> it works really well. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something I think a lot of adult actors struggle with, actually. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. I, I'm... I like it. I'm hearing mostly mostly positive things here. Yeah, Zeke, I had no idea there were so many parallels to Stranger Things because I didn't watch Stranger Things. I got through the first two episodes and was still bored and not interested in the characters and went, eh, and I put it away. And I don't know if it's because it was so similar and I was like, some, some subconscious part of me was like, just go watch Super 8 again or if, you know, something else. But I definitely feel like fair. if I had watched Super 8 first, I'd been like, well, I could have been done with this in two hours. <laughs> Why am I watching three seasons of this? <laughs> but, I don't know. That, like, I don't. It's weird because picking up Stranger Things, right? Having seen this back in right. 2011, like this didn't pop into my mind when watching Stranger Things. But like having seen Super 8 and then seeing Stranger Things and then seeing Super 8 again, I'm like, oh shit! All the things <laughs> are here <laughs> coming back. Yeah. All the strange things. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny too. One of the things I I noticed too is like you know I. I I feel like sometimes it's like why 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 going back to the 80s why like aside from the nostalgia is like you couldn't make movies like that now because everybody had cell phone and I feel like there were so many points 
and so many like problems that arise. It's like, well, if you had a cell phone, this wouldn't have happened. Right. <laughs> you know, you have to and develop I, I feel like the that's film. Part you of, have to go back for your camera. It's, it's amazing you, how many, right. how much everything changes with cell phones. And, yeah. you know, at least in the early 2000s, even films were like relying on cell phones as being things that you could lose or get bad signal right. or just still mm -hmm. kind of on the expensive-ish side for a while, right? And they were sort of leveraging these three factors to remove cell phones from their plots. But, uh, you know, now here we are and suddenly the past is so much more popular. <laughs> I wonder if we'll start to see other decades be represented more as time goes on. Because I, I think there's definitely going to be a 90s wave. I think that's the next one. 1979, officially. Right. It's going to be based around beepers. Yeah. <laughs> the beeper plot. I don't know. Let's write it. I'll edit that out. We'll write a beeper-based uh, thriller. Yeah. Let's go film it. Yeah. I mean, if you Eight do get like, uh, you, I haven't seen them, but like I've seen the trailers for horror movies that are like, you're on a Zoom call and then a scary thing happens. Or like, right. I don't know. So there's like technology-based movies. Or is now. there one yeah, unfriended really. or whatever? That right, one, right. Like, uh -huh. the, the beeper one, because we actually had, I mean, it wasn't a horror situation. I remember when I was in college, was around the time when papers came about. So my dad got me a pager, which was great because whenever he wanted to contact me, he would page me, but then I had to find a fucking phone somehow. <laughs> like I didn't have a cell phone. Like what good does it do if you tell me like, hey, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, how, what, what do I do? <laughs> That's the thing, like it would be a so great So that could like, be the whole movie device. is like you get a page. Right. But, yeah. But it's also a great plot the device because even the phone. silent, like even vibrate on a beeper was fucking loud. Like there's no volume off option. So it like, it would be ringing and it would be telling you where the killer was, but it would be also telling the killer where you are. <laughs> yeah. So maybe it's one of those things where it's like you plant that, like the final showdown is like the beeper is planted in a location as a, as a bait and he's, you're already on the phone and it's like anticipating, like I'm going to get a call and I can call you and let you know where he is. Like, this is writing itself. I'm erasing all of that and we're going to make a million dollars. <laughs> Just a million. Though. And that's yeah. not going to cover the cost. Laser discs. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it the obsolete trilogy. <laughs> yeah. and, and mini discs. It's a, a plot in a Bojack Horseman episode. They find well, the character is dead and like they're going through his things. They find what's supposed to be a really important note or whatever, but it's on a floppy disk in a box in his storage. <laughs> and there's this like, well, how the hell are we going to read this moment? <laughs> because when he made it, you know, that was what he had. It was like, oh, yeah. See, I have anxiety about that for like the future. And I know we're getting off topic. We'll come back to the film. But this is just like friends talking for a second. Yeah, no. I always have that anxiety here. about like all of this like banked tech that I have or like all of this content, right? Like enjoyment stuff I have in libraries of discs or just like getting to a point where there is no electricity and having all of the, it's like the scene from that uh, Twilight Zone where there was time enough to read and his fucking glasses broke. Like I have ever access to every movie ever made. And if it all goes lights out, I won't be able to watch it again. <laughs> I'm not clever enough to re reintroduce electricity <laughs> to power my VCR, you know? Like, anyway. You have to turn all of your advanced technology into books. 
<laughs> all of the novelizations of the movies <laughs> i was yeah. going to say like the if that's the modern twilight zone episode it's, it's uh -huh. kind of sad <laughs> it is that's really sad just the emp crank. goes up if i spend the whole day cranking this i get the next five minutes of batman <laughs> <laughs> worth it that's the original dial-up loading <laughs> and that's yeah your your little like nuclear winter camp party has one person hunting one person foraging one person doing camp work and one person cranking every day <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great all right let's transition so, into favorite scenes yeah um, coming back not to bleak. I mean, obviously the train sequence is incredible. Um, right. Let's, I mean, we can talk about it in its own time. It, it's incredible. It's great. It doesn't look CGI. Like it's really well integrated. Elle Fanning's performance doing the cold line reading is incredible. Just, just, incre I'm very sad that that's not the take. Like they weren't rolling for that. You know, how like life and they're like, oh, production value. That, that's, that's a rookie director mistake if I've ever seen one. <laughs> that, was, that was beautiful. It's the so constant production value <laughs> section. I appreciated it. Like, I understand. That's a little kid mentality. It's like, oh, yeah. you have a beautiful performance. You're going to put train noise all over the top of it. Just that, that was ridiculous. Um, and like they, they set up and kill that joke in the first like 10 minutes yeah. because he says production value a bunch of times. Yeah. And then while they're there, the train is coming, and you right. see him turn to them, his eyes get wide, he goes, production value, and that's it, that's like, the punchline. It's the best thing to happen for their film, right? Like, yeah. the train goes by, the wreckage is in the background, and then the army showed up, like, it, it builds the context for their whole movie, it's great. Anytime the pyromaniac kid is doing anything, <laughs> I was so dialed in. I love that kid, perfectly cast, perfect teeth apparatus perfect hair perfect sensibility overly swearing like that that kid i really enjoyed watching <laughs> he's never he wouldn't be the kid that i would like be in the movie but he's definitely the one i would want to hang out with in the movie those are mine <laughs> um, tim what were some of your favorite parts one of my favorites it was it was a line that i really liked that um and other movies have done this too where when the, the the sheriff, the original sheriff, the actual sheriff, like when he walks into the gas station and the kid working there is playing with his new Walkman <laughs> and, you know, and the guy catches him and he's like, oh yeah, you know, it's like, so you can walk around, you know, everywhere with your music. And he's like, and, and I forget what exactly he says, but the idea like, oh, you know, kids didn't have their own stereo that they could just walk around with. And I was like, okay, I get it. This show, you know, every generation there's, the older generation looking at the younger generation going, oh, this new technology, you should not have that. This is he said ruin it's a you. slippery then, slope. And I wrote down, what the fuck does that mean? Slope, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, if kids can listen to their own music, then who, you know, they'll start doing drugs and worshiping the devil. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yep, there, yep, there it is, you know, like. So, you know, like, just kind of like, could you, you know, can you imagine what that guy you know, if he could look into the future and see like what kids have, you know, which I know is kind of the point of it, you know. I liked also that it was like the younger generation wanted to share it with him. That was the whole thing. You want to try it? Like, how cool is this? And he's like, fuck you. I don't want it. You shouldn't have it. I've never wanted a dude to be eaten so quickly. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when he comes back at the end and he's like, <laughs> no, I'm not going that way. Follow me. <sighs> I'm like, justice. That's, that was yep. justice. Yeah. 
Uh, it, it reminds me of, uh, well, two things that made me think of in Parks and Rec when Ron's on, he's like, oh, Tom put all my music onto this rectangle. <laughs> this is an excellent <laughs> rectangle. <laughs> Um, and then also in uh, the, um, was it like a, a billion ways to die in the old West or whatever, the, the Seth MacFarlane movie mm-hmm. where they, the, it shows the kids like playing with the hoop with the stick and, and <laughs> yes. he makes a comment about oh, like, Oh about yeah. That. You know, people are saying that, you know, kids, because they're looking down at the stick, they're, you know, they're constantly looking down at the hoop and the stick and they're not, they're not looking up and they're not innovating. And it was just like, yep. Like, Oh, yep. There it is. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. See, I want to I see a, the movie where it's, but, it, but it's someone looking at that generation saying like, oh yeah, you guys looking down at your newspapers, you know, because you're busy reading the newspaper. You're not looking up and experiencing life and this, this and that. And like, you know, I feel like that's, that's where the joke gets lost. Like it's not directed at the perspective of the generation who is criticizing. It's kind of the generation that's being criticized, looking back at the joke and going, oh yeah, look, they've, been, they've always been like this. <laughs> so yeah, so that was a good scene. Um, one, one of the, it, it's not necessarily a favorite scene, but it was an observation I made of how, and I guess this could fit into the nostalgia part of it, but how, um, you know, there's, there's the, 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 the local, you know, police officer guy who he's, he's kind of the one everyone turns to for help, you know, and it's, which is, an, you know, again, the thing they did in Stranger Things, but also kind of reminded me of like Walking Dead a little bit with Rick Grimes, you know, it's like, you know, oh, like you're you're a cop, therefore your job is law and order. We need you to kind of lead us slash save us. You know how how this guy was kind of um, at the center of this. And oh, um, leftovers. That was another show that did that. Where you know Justin Thoreau's character, he's like you know the I don't know if he's like the sheriff or just like the cop and be like you know, but but you know he's a cop and it's like okay, you know here's this huge tragedy where where everyone's kind of turning to us to kind of keep the law in order and whatever. Um, but it's just like he's, it's he's just the here, guy, you know. I think a little better than elsewhere because they spend the early part of the film establishing him as a workaholic. Yeah. So he's just the one who's always in the station, involved in everything, constantly solving everyone's problems all the time. But also I feel like it, it did a good job of, it, you know, he, he was also just a guy, you know. And, and like that was part of it too is like, you know, I feel like in some of the other shows when I've seen that, like with um, Walking Dead and, and, you know, there's almost this sort of like superhuman quality put on them. Like they, they are this like super cop and you're, you kind of buy like, oh yeah, you know, you should be in charge of this whole town or this whole group of people. Whereas with him, I feel like it's just like, you never get the sense that he, uh, you know, he kind of is this not superhuman because obviously he's not superhuman, but, but you don't see him as this leader really. Like he's just a guy kind of having this thrown on him, trying to do his job, you know, and it's not even supposed to be him. It's supposed to be the sheriff, but he's just a deputy. So it's kind of like, you know, him. (laughs) So it's like, okay, I got to figure this out, but also kind of take care of my kid, but I'm not really a good dad to begin with. So I guess I'll just focus on the work, but you know, it's not like he, he doesn't really save the day, don't guess, like some of these other characters do, or they're kind of portrayed that way. So, um, and it was kind of interesting too, because that almost tied into the fact that like he he wasn't really like all that memorable, and like had like this like star quality, which I felt like worked really well. It made him more just like a regular dude, you know. Like I couldn't even remember what else that actor has been in, you know, um, which I felt also kept the focus on the kids. Um, so, so anyway, like, I feel like, yeah, they did a good job of just making him be this kind of generic parent slash cop 
but not like the savior of the town, but everyone wanted him to be, but, but he just kind of did his thing. Um, so I like that. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I, I think for me, the whole idea of the, the kid wanting to make a film and, you know, working with his friends to make films, like any, any part of that, like I just loved cause it was just like, you know, and that was, that was my whole reason for wanting to start film club is like, I just want to make movies with my friends. Like what, what, what the hell, like, you know, kids do this all the time and have been doing this. Like, why, why can't we do this now? And somehow, yeah, as an adult, it's so much harder. I don't know if it's just that your standards are higher or just that films in general are better, but like, you know, also the, yeah, the, that looking back on that and being like a kid who's like, wow, this is amazing. And it is an ama- amazing for, for a kid, but like, I feel like if we were trying to make a movie that they're making nowadays, we'd be like, Oh, like, but the, the zombie is the same person every time. Like that, that, that's not going to cut it. People are going to criticize the hell out of this. You know, can you imagine what the YouTube comments are going to look like if our film has the same kid dying over and over again, you know, like one <laughs> zombie, you know, like, I feel like you, you can't just put your heart and soul into it and make something that you love and that you feel like is great because those, those voices are always there. So, so look, watching them do that, you know, and, and see that the, 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 the director is almost like kind of a bully to his friends. Like, not that I <laughs> like that, but it's like, but it was kind of like, yeah, I get it. Like he, this is, this movie's his baby, you know, and he wants it to be great. So, so yeah, that, that whole chunk of the movie kind of woven through, I think was one of my favorite parts, like the, you know, like he's he's gonna make it someday real quick i wanted to highlight one of my favorite lines tyna got this little board with letters so i'm gonna try and stage it um but for every episode we're gonna put a quote from the movie in the background but it's your obsession with fireworks and i'm saying this as a friend concerns me and my mother it's great (laughs) i love that line so much and it so perfectly characterizes that character. Sorry, not not to break yeah. up the rhythm too much, but I thought that was cool. But my head was like right in front of it, so I wanted to showcase it. Uh, brilliant. I also oh, that was another favorite thing too. It wasn't a scene; it was a running thing. Is that their their use of the word "pussy" was? I feel like that's that's how it happens. Like when you're a kid, you get this is the insult we use for everybody, even though it's not really used appropriately. Right. You know, in terms of like you know, how that word is normally used as an insult, which is problematic nowadays. But, but, you know, again, back then, that was the word that everyone was calling everybody, you know? So like, even if it wasn't someone who was being afraid of something, it's like, oh, you, you know, yeah, you pussy. And it was just like the way it just kept getting thrown out was just like yeah, that nostalgic, like grounding as well. Um, I noticed that. Was, yeah. And then they kept using mint when something was really good, yep. which is something yeah, I'd never mint. heard before i, I remember know. that i remember that using that word oh, okay. yeah it, it was it was i was glad that it was pussy and not something else that i'll i'll right. say that not the the yeah. best word Which to use but it could have been it i just watched the yeah. rob zombie uh, halloween and god damn they overused that word it's so bad the using pussy though and also the you know they say shit and yeah it's like kids. like it's, it's totally kids, right. it, totally it, it true to feels life so much more real than yeah. the somewhat more sanitized other movies of the era like you mentioned earlier tim that the edit from guns to flashlights of the like mm-hmm. like jj put together what it was really like to be in that time with the same sense of adventure you know he met the story with the reality right as yeah. opposed to just the story and that was really refreshing because yeah they could use anything <laughs> use anything they find yeah but it didn't seem excessive either 
like it can sometimes and did even as a kid sometimes you know it it, it just was like yeah it's just how they talk and it, mm-hmm. you know they reacted appropriately for the situation did you have more favorite sections tim no i think that was pretty much it all right yeah zeke do you want to lay some of your favorites on us yeah oh wait a um, minute i'm sorry i'm so sorry i'm so sorry sorry the, the, and i hope this isn't yours actually no you no you go zeke and i'm going to say this one if it isn't one because i don't want to ruin it because it was another scene it was something that i didn't notice the first time i watched this so i had a huge appreciation for it but i've already talked enough so you go and then come back to me after zeke if he hasn't already said it i'm gonna say it <laughs> i think you might be safe i've got two funny ones and then and then a more serious one um i think i like the uh the cold read of the script but for a different reason i think just because as as El Fanning was like delivering that heartfelt speech, you've got the kid awkwardly pretending to use the payphone in the background. <laughs> and it's just, <laughs> it was just a, like a classic kids making a movie, like just a funny sight gag and like everyone, like, and then the guy exchanging with her, he's like very, you know, reading it as it is. And he's very tense. Everything's shitty about the scene except for her delivery. <laughs> um, so I really like that. Um, the worst pretending to use a payphone ever. <laughs> so good. Um, and then this one's kind of a generational sort of exchange, Tim, like you mentioned, but in a different way. So one of my favorite lines is when um, the, the, the daughter of the, the filmmaking, or the, the sister of the filmmaking kid, the daughter in that family, um, is arguing with her mom and she wants to go to the party and the mom's not letting her. And she's like, it's not fair. Mom says, not fair is in Africa. She pauses, storms away. Mom's racist. <laughs> so hilarious. Or just, you know, kind of like a current check on, you know, kids in Africa are starving. Or like, you want to see not fair? Go to Africa. And then she just hits the mom with like, no, that's not okay. You racist. <laughs> I enjoyed that. And then I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I like the, um, the scene where we get to see... I guess Professor Woodward's uh, lab footage and he's talking about the monster and I just thought that way you know I, it was exposition right but it was done in a way that felt I guess a little more genuine or um, just a natural part of the story right they come across that tape and he kind of explains everything and you get to see him yoinked up by the monster and um, I don't know I just thought that was a good way to kind of give you those next right he had the subtle clue when they first see him in the car or when the um, when he's yeah explaining to the Air Force guys, I think right that um, he's a part of me and I'm a part of him, and then you learn about the connection through that lab footage. I just thought that was a really cool way to do that. So I think those were those were kind of the big favorites for me. Yeah, very nice. That that lab footage reveal is really well done. You know, the teacher as a character maintains a presence throughout the film, regardless of where he is in the present, and that works really well. I liked it, yeah. My, I mean, yeah, my favorite parts then and now were the train crash, which is just spectacular. And then I guess either the scene in the bus when the kids have been caught at the school and are being taken away and they get attacked, slash the later scene when they're in the house, like having a conversation and then the house explodes. And they keep um, trying to have the conversation. Like, the house is gone. Yeah. <laughs> like, because that, the fight the bus moment and i think one of the kids like throws up and they're like terrified and then the the moment later in the house when the one kid's leg is just broken 
just destroyed. And the kid's like, we're going to stay and help him. But then, like, you can see on their face, they don't know what the hell to do. <laughs> Except to, like, you know... And those two moments, like, are, are what elevated the film beyond the the sort of toned-down sweetness of the originals for me, if that makes sense. The The moments of, oh, like, this is shit is really going down and like our characters are getting hurt slash also our characters aren't just pulling an answer out of thin air like sometimes they're just kind of at the mercy of what's happening to them like that felt those two moments felt really impactful in in redrawing the film and yeah they they still hit for me second time around fifth time around i don't know however many (laughs) it's been a long time since i watched it so not that many but yeah they really sort of the the fine point of everything comes together there. So, so yeah, the scene that, um, and I don't know that again, the first time I watched this, if I just wasn't paying enough attention. So at the end, when the alien is, is holding the kid, he's kind of like looking him in the face. And I remember like watching that scene and it, it seemed to take too long. And I think it's because I missed that at one point they show the alien's eyes and they look human. I don't know. I almost I feel like he had almost like a second set of eyelids that kind of pull back and you see they're like round pupils and round iris. And it was just like, you know, as a way of showing kind of like the, the humanity of him, which I feel like to me, that moment kind of sold the whole point of it, you know, where it's like, again, in, you know, in these monster movies, okay, there's this monster trashing everything. You're like, that monster is evil. It needs to be destroyed. But the whole point of this was like he happened to crash here and the army's been fucking torturing him for decades or a decade or whatever, you know, and he just wants to get home, you know, kind of like E.T., kind of like what would have happened to E.T. had he got caught, you know. Um, So to kind of show, you know, when they kind of show his face, I remember thinking like, oh, this is almost like too much of a reveal. I almost wish they hadn't shown it this clearly, you know. But then like even with his face, the more you kind of look at it, it had more human features and then that second shot of the eyes. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, okay, this is why when I first saw it, I was like, why are they just showing his face for so long? So I don't know if my TV just sucked or something, but yeah, I thought that was like a perfect thing to be like, you know, yeah, these monsters are not always monsters. You know, they're, they're just being in, in a fucked up situation and it's, you know, it's in survival mode. It's been backed into a corner, you know, it's just trying to get the fuck off this planet, you know, but it's not, it's not evil, you know, and it's, it's killed people, but it's like, you know, uh, you know, and, or, you know, at first, I guess it was eating people. Like that was one thing they kind of reveal, which I was like, Oh, that's fucked up. But it's like, Hey, you know, like, I guess it's just, it's not a vegetarian. It's like, okay, this is a lower life form. I'm hungry. I'm going to eat it. So it's like, you know, um, but, but again, you know, it didn't, when it given the chance, it got off the planet. It wasn't just like, cool. I want to kill everybody, you know? Um, so yeah, so that kind of, that moment gave me a whole new appreciation for the film because of that and just like why he made the connection with the kid and kind of all of that just kind of locked in better this time watching it, you know, and the fact that, you know, uh, I feel like in monster movies, you usually don't have time to, to look into the eyes of the monster. You know, it's like, yeah, this, this isn't a monster. It happens to be from another planet, but you know, just let it, let it go home, you know, like, and, you know, and the fact that the kid, yeah, was able to reason with it and, and get through to it and have it be like, yeah, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to destroy these people. And, I, I, you know, for whatever reason I am here, I, I just want to leave, you know. Um, also, I feel like I, one of the things that didn't sit well with me, but I feel like this is also part of the storytelling is like, 
he was like building shit underground. Like, why? What was what was the purpose of that? I guess it's to bring together all his little cubes to make his ship. But like, why? You know. And I just kind of like that, that must be the whole like calling back to ET thing. You know. I definitely um, got the sense with that where it came together too cleanly there at the end. Yeah. Where it's like, okay, he had the heart to heart with the kid, and then everything, all the cubes suddenly burst out. Like, why didn't you do that earlier? Um, I, and that's the thing. It didn't really establish that there was like a countdown or something like he was getting enough power, right. To have this magnet, to have everything come together. Like there wasn't anything establishing that fact in, yeah. in the exposition or setup of it. So it was just kind of like, you could have done this shit the whole time and you weren't like maliciously killing everybody. You were just grabbing engine parts and shit. So why, why wait until this second to do that? So that, that kind of got jumbled for me. I did think that yeah. um, that's another cue that JJ took from Spielberg was with showing very little of the monster until late. I was, I was surprised we got as much of the monster as we did as early as we did, even though it yeah. was like the top of the third act when we actually see this kind of Ackley ish muto kind of Cloverfield monster. Like it, it's kind of this amalgam, like a lot of things that came after took its, their visual cues from this monster build. Um, I thought it was really, I liked not seeing as much of it. It's like, Oh, are we not really going to see any of it? Is it just going to be this silent killer? And I think it's very much the same way Spielberg used jaws for different reasons, obviously like you can't see Bruce the whole film because Bruce looked terrible and he only worked in that last couple scenes um, because it had built so much, um, uh, legitimacy through obscura essentially so I, I i enjoyed getting to see as much of it as we did and it looked great again the, the cgi is really ages well in this i didn't see it and even in that uh, kind of facial recognition and seeing the eyes pull back like it, it was well rendered it felt like it was there i liked that a lot yeah, yeah. i think you're right about the plot speeding up a bit towards the end and some of that feels natural because the military is getting increasingly desperate and impatient. And so, you know, their escalation up to let's make an excuse to evacuate the town and then just blow up monster up like works. But See, so I didn't have a problem with that. It's also a reference to, I mean, there's a lot of George Romero references in here, mm. especially with, I mean, they're making a zombie movie, obviously in the posters on the wall, but sure. the whole idea of a quarantine area and burning people out that's the crazies that's mm -hmm. exactly pulled from the crazies it's like almost blatant so i think i think people kind of haranguing him for not being the next spielberg are omitting this huge directorial influence in the crazies down yeah. to like the decontamination suits but my i don't really have a problem with like the ex escalation of the no, minimum yeah, distance program so protocol. much of that escalation happened sort of off screen as our kids grappled with other parts that like right. right about when they got the answer, they also found themselves out of time. Right. And that feels a little abrupt. My whole thing is like, I think them finding all the tapes and having all the things to play the tapes at that time seemed a little contrived and weird. It seemed like weird that the air force wouldn't have checked the school. Like that would have, I don't know that that seems they haven't been there a whole long time, but they've been enough to ransack his house, and there's a lot of them there. I, that that was a See, little. The contrived. feeling I got from that was that they didn't have a lot of manpower. 
because all we see the Air Force doing at first is they're the detachment from the, the laboratory. And we see them clean up the wreck and like generally, you know, setting up a presence in the town. And that's basically all we see for almost the entire movie until the climax when a whole well, bunch I mean, more You've got the up. trucks going through with the Geiger counter. You've got the huge detachment ransacking his house. I feel like there, true, there's yeah. numbers, like numbers get there. It's gradual, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not trying to make it too huge. But I mean, when they're, they're driving through, I mean, we see it pretty specifically through the eyes of the sheriff. Like that looks mm-hmm. weird, right? But the, the thing, more than anything else, besides the hurry up offense of the like, okay, E.T.'s going home, now he turns the shit on and can, could have gotten out of there earlier, was the, all of the weapons misfiring? That seemed very plot contrived. It did not seem, I mean, it was just, we need some explosions going off. It wasn't, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like we have sighted the alien and we're shooting at it. It, it was just like, okay, they're all firing now. And it didn't seem to have any reason. It's not something that, yeah, I guess the alien orchestrated it. A mixture of like things we don't know about the alien causing problems and or a, a very Hollywood understanding of magnetic fields and technology <laughs> yeah. and or, you know, a need for more action, right? And because the the ship that finally does take off is made of a lot of scrap from the town. Mm-hmm. So Eiler, when he first arrived, his ship was damaged in such a way that the cubes alone couldn't do it. And he always needed scrap or the military still had a bunch of the cubes locked away somewhere or who knows what was going on there. That's the thing. Like I, right. I think you had stepped away when I was talking about this, but the idea that there wasn't enough of a cue on screen where you see kind of the ramshackle of everything kind of like all the engines pulsing in this kind of framework. There wasn't enough of a sense that like he was waiting for something to come together. He has the heart to heart with the kid and then he goes and he makes his ship and he dips. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing to signal that he was waiting for something. He, he just seemed like he could yeah, have like As far as they can time. tell, he's just gathering a bunch of stuff and exploding everything. Right. right. So the, he was waiting for the locket so we could all cry. Oh gosh. <laughs> I let, let's let's talk about there's, that. Let's there's the in. contrived sweetness right. of the old films. There it is. It's in the locket. There's so much wrapped up in this scene for me, and I, I this is where I don't know who the audience of this movie is because the locket is such a saccharine bow on the package of the film that that's what you would that's what you get at the end of uh, E. T. Right, mm-hmm. like the the that thing I, I it's it's a very similar kind of like i don't know it's just so so pretty it seemed really precious for something that it it taken its time making it so adult to have kind of like this it's it's a complex emotional concept right but to visualize it so quaintly see i don't know it, it just it that in particular kind of made me roll my eyes i i don't know I don't know who this is for. I feel like that's the endings of the movie that you is PG and is for kids, the same audience as ET. Whereas I think because this monster is ripping, I mean, alien is ripping people apart and like there's trauma and abuse and this whole, it's just so much more adult than that. It just seemed too, again, too pretty, too saccharine for me. Zeke, what did, you, you liked that. Let, 
let's hash it. Hash I, didn't, it I didn't like it. No. I oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I was saying it jokingly, like all he Gosh, needed was the, the locket to complete his ship so he could fly away. I mean, right. I don't know that I hated it. I don't, it just did feel contrived and felt like, you know, like you said, just like a, a sweet little bow to, to throw on at the end, mm-hmm. you know, it's a feel good mo- movie part. I, I think that's what they were trying to do. I think. And plus, doesn't doesn't the the whole story take place like four months after the kid's mom died? I think at one point they say like four months later, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. so it's like this this what ten eleven twelve year old boy like he's he's over the fact that his mom died four months later. Like no, like the, I mean I guess maybe kids are more resilient than adults, but like like yeah, that's I the, get the I idea of like he is oh, over it to let when the film go. starts. Like I mean yeah, I guess the whole film is getting through your grief and everything. So I guess he's over it by the end. But at the beginning, he's very much not. And right. you can see it in some of the scenes with him and the uh, the girl whose dad called out, you know, from being at the factory. Like, there are a lot of these really uncomfortable moments when he realizes that things aren't great in her life either. And it seems almost like she's the first person she, he's interacted with who doesn't have a great life because his friends are just normal, right? They're hanging Alice. out, living her in their houses. Alice. Alice, thank you. Like... And then if he knew about what happened with her dad, maybe he holds some some blame, but like he shows up at their house and things are awful and there's like there's a lot in his expression there. And then later when Alice, you know, sort of apologizes to him about the whole situation with her dad, like I it feels like that's the first time he's really like connecting to other people and their struggles other rather than just going through the motions. And we're seeing that, like, reopening up for this character. And I, like, I mean, you're right. It In the course of a few days, four months later, right, suddenly he's over it. He's, he's a bit, that's, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, <laughs> right. Um, but at the very least, I'd argue he begins, begins the process of healing. Can I say, I definitely thought it was going to be a much more sinister, fucked up reveal about Alice's dad and... Jack's mom like yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought they were gonna be like brother and sister or something right like like yeah. that's how it was played out right that seemed like the fucked up place it was going is like this dude fucked my wife and now he's showing up at the funeral like you don't react like that and take him to the police station from a oh you just called out type thing like I understand it just seemed like that reveal didn't seem it seemed like a little kid answer you know again I don't know it, it was, it seemed, and I don't know if that's just me project, but it definitely felt more sinister. Like the first interaction you have between these two characters is, why the fuck are you here? That That's yeah. like a cuckold response. That's not, I, I don't know. I, I I mean, he's grieving, right? His wife, his wife passed and he's going to, he's placing the blame on the guy who called out and mm-hmm. his wife had like, I don't know. I never thought it was going to be. And he called out not because he was actually sick, but because he was drunk again. Right. And that's right. the thing too. I was going to say is like, he's known as the town drunk and like, you know, here he goes, you know, everybody blames him. Right. When um, he goes to the, what is the car dealership and they're wondering why all the, all the engines are missing. And the guy's like, Oh, you go check with, um, forget his name, but go check with him. You know, I, so everybody has a reason to hate this guy. And then he shows up when you're in the middle of grieving at your wife's funeral and mm-hmm. you're thinking he's the reason that she died. Like you're not going to have a, a very calm, like rational, Hey buddy, let's talk it out response. Like, so right. I didn't think it was crazy that he, 
you know, I, yeah, I wasn't jumping to a he fucked my wife sort of thing. Gotcha. Yes, I, I guess I get, go to a raging bull place whenever <laughs> I see that set up. You fuck my wife? No, but like, I, I don't know. It's like, you're a cop. I imagine there would be other cops there. Like, if you didn't take it so personally, you wouldn't be the guy. I mean, I guess they kind of set up his character to be everything personal takes a second seat to being the deputy, right? Like, he leaves the wake for his wife to take this dude in. And I guess I it's like, think, what's up to, to the recurring thing theme of, uh, of bad police work. I don't think you can <laughs> detain a guy like that. What is he where's, disturbing where's the, the warrant to put him in your cop car? I feel like that's illegal. I'm going to look at me. He was trespassing technically since you asked him to leave, <laughs> but like, also, we'll I mean, him. what's he going to do? Like he's going to put him in a cell for six hours and then send him home. Like, and it's a small or town. Just drive Who's going to stop him. Right. Like, He's going to drive him away, drop him off at the sheriff's place. The people who are there Make are going to walk back like, to his car. Why are you here during the wake? Oh, and then like, just have the guy like, just go sit, go sit over there for two hours and then go home. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Like that was a very small town feel, you know, mm-hmm. to the film. Yeah. I just, I, I definitely thought that like, I don't know, the weird coldness to the sun. I mean, obviously like it's a different time. It's, it's like being a, a deputy in a small town like you don't interact with your kid all that much but it's also like you see this affection for but i also got this like like tim said like they might be brother and sister or related in some way like it was very weird i don't know the, the film took me to a weird place it was very twisted and it was more adult than et right like i i was taking the cues like this is adult entertainment entertain well i mean it's, it was entertaining but like it, it's for an adult audience so I expected it to go to a much more fucked up place. And in, in some ways, it's more fucked up that it's nobody's fault, really. Like, he wasn't on the job because he was drunk. If he had been on the job while drunk, who's to say it, nobody else, like, somebody else could have gotten hurt? Like, he removed himself from the situation and shit went wrong. And, I mean, you saw how many days they had gone without an accident. That was a pretty big number. That was a couple years. So it, it's it, it's a freak accident. And when, when the I dad realizes it. never comes up again either. There's no right. attempt to circle it back to the conspiracy or anything. It just, right. it's just shit happens. Right. That was great. Just let it stand. Cause like, yeah, without him there, things might've gone differently. Maybe he would have been the one in the accident, but maybe someone else. Right. Yeah. I think my, the problem I'm finding is like the neatness of certain things in it. Like it set up things to be messy and some things did and then some things didn't. And I think that that's kind of, where my this is a film searching for an audience for me i enjoyed it it's definitely for me but there are aspects of it that seem younger me and you know Hmm. but i think that's fair i I don't know i again to like feeling from my feeling that everything kind of unwrapped not everything unwrapped perfectly but things that they kind of laid hints at unwrapped pretty well right no i think the pacing is great yeah, well, right. But I'm no. What I was going to say is, like, Alice talks to Joe and says, "Hey, my dad worked there." And right. then you get the next clue that, you know, my dad was the reason why. And like, so then you start to. So I don't know. I for just to me, that's all I was expecting. Right? Was like, he's standoffish to Joe because he's he feels he's the reason gotcha. his his mom died. Right? Like, I don't know. I I feel like that there was enough there to make you think that, like, it it was complicated. But the result of it being complicated was just that. He called in this kid's mom died because of him is is how he's internalizing that i guess yeah just if, different interpretations of how i guess adult like i don't know i i feel like the reveal being guilt because you think you're at fault for killing someone is a pretty adult theme too right it doesn't have to be I, so i don't know I, I felt like it unfolded in an adult 
way. Right. I think they also want him to be Snape. (laughs) (laughs) I love with your mother. (laughs) (laughs) And I look in your green eyes. Fuck Snape. I'll say that to the end of my life. Um, Ooh, okay. I know that that's a that's a controversial opinion for it. I I like him much more in the movies than I do the books. I'll say that because it's Alan Rickman. I still think it's creepy. I think it's creepy. Um, but I think it's something to be said about how that story unfolds through the mouthpiece of the kids. I think that's also something like it is it is very adult. I I wanted it to be messier and more adult, but like it didn't. Adult it, it, having a sexual connotation, I guess, is what I'm meaning by adult rather than childlike, which is fucked up and wrapped up into how Americans t- treat sex in storytelling. Rating but, system, hooray. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's traumatic enough. Like, it's, I wouldn't say it's, it doesn't hold any weight. It's kind of like a dud, but it, it just wasn't. Yeah, it different interpretations of the lead up for sure. Let's talk a little more about J.J. Abrams, as we were as we were talking about before. And I mean, yeah, now that I'm looking at the few few things he's actually directed, my you know my my prepared topics are out the window. But you know the things he's attached his name to, I I mean, yeah, he's he's made a career out of repackaging nostalgia, but at least in film, at least in film, yes, and. But yeah, but even then, the things he gets he has to produce are all over the place, right? Um, and he keeps his name pretty prominently present, you know, in the things he produces. Again, not knowing how much creative control he does or doesn't have, he certainly is attached, you know, and he's attached to all kinds of things that go all over the place. Which, especially if you look at his TV writing, is a little more like it feels more like he he did manage to break out of being the next Spielberg by instead getting forced into being the guy who reboots things or refreshes things. Mm -hmm. And it, it hurts because this was like, what I liked about this was the way it took old flavors and remixed them into something original. And I feel like a lot of what he's been asked to do otherwise wasn't to make something original, but was to just make it popular again. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard when you get handed the keys to Star Trek no, and sure. then Star I mean, Wars. They, like, lots of I, other things. They the specific franchises have much more baggage than when he's just riffing on the things yeah. he grew up with. And that's the thing. But, I think if he had been come into something with less established history to revitalize it. Yeah, I, th- I think here I am he wishing was, he'd do another another quote unquote original. I mean, mm-hmm. Super Eight is original, but also not right. That's why I've sort of been waiting for that since Super Eight came out. And we haven't got it. And mm-hmm. I keep waiting. And rewatching this was kind of a reanalysis too. And I, I, I even I want it more now. I want it even more now because I believe more in, in Abrams' creativity, if that makes sense. But this has sort of renewed my I, usual and mostly Star Wars. But when I hear his name lately, it's kind of a company with a sigh, <laughs> like oh, some other project that has lots of old stuff in it. Oh, great, you know who. This sort of reaffirmed, like, yeah, like this is why he's here. He's good at this. And I want to see what comes next. Well, the other thing is, like, I, I think it's such a, a fine line to play with. I mean, Super Eight works because it hits all the the, the nostalgia things in the right amounts, right? If he comes at it again, I'm not so sure you can recreate that mixture. You know? I don't mean I, I want him to come at this again. No, no, no. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm saying. Sorry. 
watching it, I, I felt everything felt familiar and I could see all of the influences. It didn't distract from anything. I didn't not like it because I could see this scene was from this, the, the influence of Jaws or of the crazies or of Goonies or of Stand By Me. Like I wasn't mad see, like because I could see the strings. But I'm saying if you go out to do, I, I mean, this is what I think he can do. But if he does it again and the mixture is not right, it's just going to feel contrived and unbalanced. And I think Super 8 is a testament to like all the things that have to come together if you are being an amalgam of all these in influences. I don't, I don't know that I, I could pinpoint JJ's directorial style. Does that, does that make mm -hmm. any sense? Like, I, oh, I, yeah, I don't you're know. Totally right. At least as a filmmaker, I, 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 I mean, you're right, but I, because so much of what lens he does, yeah, you beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> because so much of what he does is this old stuff that's been repackaged. Like I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for him to revisit Super 8 specifically or to do another original unoriginal, but just to do another original of any kind, whether it's right. another blending of influences or just something completely original. I just, I want to see more of. No, I'd be interested to see it too, but I would be skeptical yeah. that it could be capture the right mixture again. And that's, I mean, you, I like the new Star Trek films and I think they, they mm -hmm. range. I think Zeke and I went to see the first two in theaters together. And right. Zeke, you didn't have the baggage of being a Trekkie from before. And you're like, I really like these. I don't know. Like, I think you had said you didn't have interest in going back because you have these new ones, right? I think that was, or um, not to put words in your mouth from yeah. 10 years ago when we <laughs> right. saw these. I don't know about that part. I think it, if anything, it made me, you know, a little more interested to, to uh, go and watch some of the older ones. But I think for me, right, having seen nothing and then just seeing those, I was like, okay, I like that. Like, I get the appeal and it, I don't know. I don't know if it was well enough done because I hadn't seen the other stuff, but it was well enough done for me coming in cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I, the first Trek film is, is very kind of a, it's departure and it kind of makes its own way. And I think that's to its credit. That's why he gets a sequel. The sequel people had problems with because it's a repackaged con essentially. It's not even essentially, that's what it is. It is, it is just kind of, mixing the formula of wrath of Khan up and I liked it for that. I liked cause of the fan service. I think that's something that you, you definitely, you, he's paying homage to a lot of these, the story that he likes, these directors that he likes. I think that's what he's good at. I think that's why he does the producing thing is cause he can put money in other people's projects and they can do it. I, I think I, he might just like that better, like organizing the money and getting it in the hands of people I, I mean, you have to have a certain amount of confidence in yourself to, to call yourself a director, right? To also take over the reins of these huge franchises with this amount of baggage. To sign on to Star Wars is impossible. I, I talk shit out of my ass about what I would do, but you hand me the reins to it. I'm not doing that. There's no pleasing us. I know that. I'm us. You know, that, that's, that's just... So there, there's a certain amount of confidence, but if you look at how few films he's actually written and directed, it, it's a handful, literally. So I, I wonder if it's producing gives him the ability to organize and be creative in the way that he, he can, rather than, I don't, I don't know, like shaking everything together and hoping people are happy with it. Like, again, I think Force Awakens is one of, it was such a daunting task 
it's not a perfect film, but it, it pulls it off pretty close to the mark of like what we wanted from a new star Wars, you know, I mean, seeing the films that came after it and the, the dissension. And I mean, even in our group, there's dissension about which of those films we like and stuff, but it, it's just like, I don't know. I feel like you make, you make super eight and you have this, this label as <laughs> the next Spielberg who can handle yeah. that. And then yeah, you have Star sure. Trek and people are like, now you've made it too much like Star Wars. And it's like, then you get Star Wars and nobody likes that. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. I just, I found myself wondering what completely original projects he may or may not still have. Right. What's in those, what's on the back burner or what he's yeah. got cooking. Cause I, you know, the well, and, super eight felt like a tribute yeah. and it, it felt like an altar he built to show where he'd come from and that it, it felt like a one-off and I, was waiting for to see where he was going but then again whether by choice or not where he was going was back to the past again and again and again like joel you mentioned early on how like you know kind of the comparisons between jj abrams and, and joss whedon and i feel like you know like another one of my favorite creators and you know it's kind of like he, he kind of worked his ass off on his own things and then was handed the reins to Avengers, you know, and it's like, you almost feel like it's this sense of like, Oh, that must be the dream to do your own creative own stuff so that you can get to be part of these franchises. But then like, you know, age of Ultron was a mess, you know, and I didn't read too much about it because I didn't want to get into the, the trauma of it. But one of the things I did read was that, you know, Marvel was kind of like, look, this is second in a trilogy in the middle of this whole thing we're building. And Joss Whedon was like, I, I want to make the movie I want to make. And, you know, that they had a lot of back and forth and he didn't have as much creative control, but it was because they had to be planting seeds for all the Infinity War stuff and, and this, that, and the other thing. And, um, and then even one of my personal complaints, like when I was watching previews for that, I, it, it looked so much creepier. Like it almost looked like a horror film. Right. And I was almost like, oh, cool. Like this is going to be the, that side of Joss and Buffy where you're kind of going along in a few episodes and they're kind of fun and silly. And all of a sudden you get one that's actually fucking frightening and it comes out of nowhere and you're like, shit. So this, like, I thought that was going to be our first Marvel horror movie. And then it wasn't. And it was like, okay. Um, so like, yeah, like it, it's almost like, and then I feel like, you know, do people look at Joss Whedon and go, oh yeah, he's the guy who made that shitty Avengers movie. And it's like, fuck, like, you know, he, he did so much years and decades of work of like planning these shows and building them together to get to this point. And I feel like it's, it's the last thing you do that gets fucked up. That's what people remember you for, you know? Um, and then I think the other part of it too is like, you know, these are also people who, who come from television, you know, and, and sort of, you know, the, being a showrunner, you know, and I, I wonder if that's much more, maybe that's why, like you were saying earlier, why JJ will kind of get into producing. It's like, I feel like as a showrunner, you're probably in charge of the overall arc, but then you kind of hand pieces off to different people. Like you're going to write this episode. It has to get from here to here. You're going to do these next three episodes. That's a three part thing. But to have creative control of the whole, like the whole arc of it, the whole scope of it. And I wonder if like, you know, when it comes time to just get into the nitty gritty of like, well, now you've got to write dialogue for every single person for every single second of this two hour movie. And it's like, okay, now if everything, you know, if, if it's just like, uh, because it's such a different experience, you know, I almost wonder like if these guys should get back to TV you know, and just be like, mm -hmm do a show that can be told over the course of 10 episodes. It's going to have this big arc, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's part of the problem too, aside from jumping into these other franchises and not really getting to do your own thing, you know, cause that, that's what I love would see 
like to see JJ do again, you know, cause I remember, um, you know, again, whatever level of control he had in lost, I remember like when I think fringe started partway through lost. And then when lost ended, like fringe became like, it kind of filled the hole that lost had left. And I remember just being like, ah, damn, like this, this it grew into this much bigger thing. And, and sometimes I think you just, you don't get that in, in films and, and, you know, this could be like making excuses and kind of seeing things that isn't there. But I almost wonder if, if film is like too small of a format for, for people like, like Joss and like JJ, like, you know, they, they, they I, I think they need years to tell their story, you know? Right. And um, I wonder if, but, but there, I feel like going from films back to TV, is that going to look like, Oh, now JJ's slumming it. You know, it's like, I feel like we've, with films are looked at as this kind of pinnacle. Yeah. As, as with the advent of the like prestige format TV, this like, like the Breaking Bad's, the Wires, like the the fact that a lot of what's being consumed and the quality of it is is skewed. I mean, we've got great films coming out, but like television, such as it is now, are these huge projects with huge audiences, huge budgets, and great storytelling being done. And it's one of those things where it's like I don't think it's that a showrunner can't hack it as a Hollywood director. I think it's that the two jobs are so different that the skill set's different. Like you were saying, I mean, Greg Daniels is the, he created Parks and Rec and the office and Brooklyn nine, nine, like hit after hit after hit. That dude's not directing any movies, but he's churning out. Like, I don't know that. I think it's just such a different skill set. I think it's difficult to, crossover and i think i think the 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 idea that it's slumming to come back i mean what dave fincher's doing episodes of uh he did um american gods i think he did a couple episodes of that like i think i think that we're getting more prestigious directors kind of coming down and working on coming again that's i think that language is is outdated i think shifting gears to kind of mm-hmm. the television format is definitely something I I'd like to see that from Jason because he, he produced for a while and it was consistent. Like people really liked alias. People really liked the things like lost. They were huge galvanizing stories. I think you get the sense from that. I mean, from force awakens, everybody talks about the mystery boxes that that's become like a, a uh, buzzword for JJ's storytelling style. But like when you have a show, that's 22 episodes long or however over multiple seasons like you can have little things that come back later it's just really hard to do that with three films that have to be perfect <laughs> but have to be perfect for every fucking type of nerd who's ever <laughs> picked up a star wars piece of content you know i know i've been saying this a long time to you guys i don't know about on the podcast but there are lots of films that i end up wanting to see either watching the film and going, I wish that this had been a limited TV series or going, I want to see more of this universe, but I need a TV series because there's just more room for stuff to breathe and to take its time and to explore. And I think we're finally starting to, you know, something about a lot of TV that's always bothered me is that it will just keep going until it's a dead horse and they're still being it, you know, and they won't just set a plot and make it and then be done ideally now that streaming has gotten so much bigger and with it either continuous TV series or limited series, I mean, you know, stranger things, for example, right. 
I just, I'm really glad that we are starting to see more film people move into television and just, I want to see the mediums, I want to see them go back and forth a lot more in general and go to whatever medium feels appropriate for the story they're telling and then make it and be done. And I, so the, the seeds are there. Yeah, the yeah. seeds are there. Absolutely. Uh, something that I really like about kind of the modern television show is that the shifting runtime, it's not 22 minutes anymore. It's not 44 minutes with commercial breaks. Like the whole idea that the episode is as long as it needs to be to get that script done. That's a great innovation. I think, I think we start to when once the kind of lines are, are kind of blurred between television and film, and we can have these stories that roll out. Like that's what I'm kind of hoping what the Marvel universe ends up being with the WandaVision and uh, Falcon and shield and uh, or Falcon and winter soldier and she Hulk and moon Knight. Like the, the idea that these, the story is bigger than the formats it's coming from and that it can kind of become this, this narrative that flows. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that concept. It'll be, I want to see how well it is adapted. You know, Zeke, it looked like you were doing some research and we haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> yeah. I was just down the research rabbit hole. Um, yeah. Just realizing that he pivoted so much to TV lately and, you know, Westworld, Lovecraft country, um, you know, all these different pretty big popular things recently. So it's good to see that he's still doing work in a different way. I think, um, you know, my JJ Abrams knowledge was, was, is pretty limited. I have seen, um, the, the six or whatever movies we talked about, but kind of just flew off my radar. Right. And wasn't sure what else he was up to or what kind of work, um, like I said, Tim beat me to the lens flare joke because that's kind of one thing that always comes to mind when I think of him. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So it's good to good to see that he's still out there doing things, not taking heat for lens flares and still doing some pretty fun stuff. But I'm, I'm with Scott. I think, you know, it'd be interesting to see him, you know, take the lead of some other movie and, and just, just to see what it would be, right? Like, like you said, go back to that original sort of area. I kind of want for him what, I, what Ryan Johnson seems to be doing now. Like mm-hmm. I want him to have a knives out. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah, and that's right. obviously like, that's also, yeah. it has influences in kind of the whodunit genre, but it, it's very unique. And uh, that, that's what I want is I want the knives out from JJ. He deserves it. I think that's the thing is like, he has been shit on for taking the reins of these things that nobody could make the film everybody wanted in. And it's not fair to, to judge him by that. I'll see it. JJ, you've got one supporter and I know you're a listener. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I keep waiting for, for tell, like I mentioned, I want, I keep waiting for the point where creators move from television to film back and forth freely. Right. But I keep pondering about, I guess not anymore. I don't, I, whether writers were going to, start moving into video games <laughs> because there are yeah. obviously great writers of video right. games and great games with great stories and et cetera, et cetera. And there yeah. have been some people who've tried to make the jump from film to game and back and forth. And I mean, but the thing is that as we move more and more now into games that are always online and games as a service and that sort of thing, we're starting to see a real polarization of games that don't necessarily support a lot of story or it's one tiny piece of the whole or solid start to finish single player driven stuff like last of us or god of war that's just here's the story end of game and 
it's like we've reached a point where the games industry has developed its own people for that, mm-hmm. which is great. But it, it disappoints me now to think of the, the dreams I once had of different film-related people stepping over, you know, as, as right. being done. Because the industry isn't going to need them, and it's taken so long for them to start drifting between TV and film that if we're ever going to see them want to drift between those media and video games, it's, I mean, it's going to be a long way off. That's the thing. I feel like the, the, the easier crossover, right, from format-wise, like this long-form stor- storytelling would be from TV to video games and vice versa, right? Like these, a lot of the frustration with video game adaptations is there's simply not enough time to tell a satisfying story because the best version of that story is playing the game, you know? Yeah. And, and you it, know, a short, quote-unquote, video game can be 10 or 12 hours of gameplay. Right. So it's short know, for me. It takes me a while. <laughs> yeah. So even if you, if you presume that only a fraction of that is actual story where characters are standing around talking to each other, it's still usually more than a film. Right. And then there's more story that's told as you play that doesn't come over easily in exposition. And It's yeah. also hard with... with uh, I mean, now we're getting more into like your, your dialogue choices matter, right? As the, mm-hmm. the kind of plot unfolds. So it's not just writing linearly, it's, it's writing several outcomes. And I mean, that I think the people that are good at it kind of saw the, okay, you've got four dialogue options. Doesn't matter what you say, the plot unfolds the same way. Seeing that and kind of moving to the natural next step is like actually having each one of those choices impact the story. And I mean, that, that's a diffi- different skill set because that's like every plot choice and every dialogue choice has to be crafted in such a way to lead to the next thing in a satisfying or at least like something you can buy into as the player. That happened with, um, with Mass Effect, you know, because yeah. in the first three games you make decisions that cause consequences ripple out into game two, into game three. Yep. I remember people being upset when three came out that like, despite all your choices and relationships and people you talked to and helped, like at the end, it comes down to this one last choice, right? Of what to do against the the Reapers, the big enemy. Everybody was like, Oh, like I feel so railroaded, but here I am going like the whole, both the other games were nothing but railroading. Like at the end of game two, no matter what you've done in game one or game two, you know, either your character dies or he doesn't are the only two big things because if Shepard dies, there's no game three, right? And if they survive, great. And like all the other characters who either lived or died because of your choices or have found happiness or whatever, none of that really affects anything in game three. It affects the conversation you have, the words you say, the label on the face of the person you're talking to, but the actual plot is the same all the way through because it has to be. It has to be. There's already so much writing, you know, they can't, there's just no way, no other way. And, and there was a weird disconnect between a lot of people I spoke to about like, like, okay, in, if character, if character dies in game one, then in game two, you're not meeting, you know, John Smith, you're meeting, you know, Jason Smith instead. And your conversations with Jason Smith are more terse and rough because you don't have a friendship with him from game one. But at the end, either he helps you or he doesn't. Right. And if you saved John from the first game, you talk to John instead and either he helps you or he doesn't. And that's it. Like there are no, and I, and I'm, I mean, I love the games. The writing is beautiful. All the different plot paths. It's great. But it felt really weird to me that at the very end of three games worth of this, people went, 
oh wait, we never really had any choice at all. Like, right. no, <laughs> never. Like there's the thing, like the audience has a t- an appetite for that. They want their choices to matter. That's the whole thing. Like the immersive experience of that, ga- of those kinds of games is, is all about that is like how, how does the 60 hours that I've devoted to this experience in this storyline actually affect the narrative? That's, that's a huge thing. And that's the, that's something video games are so uniquely poised to give you that kind of storytelling. And I, I don't know, I mean, it would be cool to see a TV writer or a showrunner give that a try, like a, a try. I, I'd love to see it, but I, I think there's a shorthand to having written those kinds of stories, like you said, Scott, those kind of those people have come up in on their own. Yeah, the industry has grown, matured its own crop. Yeah, yeah, which is great. I mean, there's phenomenal talent over there. I'm not trying to say yeah. it's you know not good enough or anything. No, I just I remember you know being little and dreaming about mashing together films and video games and TV and video games in all these weird ways. And what you said about in the streaming era, television and film finally starting to come on par with each other and share talent was like, oh, like this is what I wanted for so long. And I'm glad to see it beginning. But man, I also wish this would have happened for video games too. It's so funny to see like people like my dad's generation see the, the kind of Twitch or what people watching people play a game and not understanding it. It took me a little, like it, it only takes me like two seconds to make the, the jump in my head. Like, why would you do this? Because the storytelling's there and you get to see like somebody, it's also like it's second, like two, two, what is it? Third wall um, uh, voyeurism or like uh, 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 role playing you are seeing yourself as the person playing the role playing game, but you're not doing anything. It's just a weird, like I could see the disconnect, but it's, you're watching the story unfold and you have a, it's like having a director's commentary, right? Like it's essentially that for this 60 hour story. If it's a game you've played before and the streamer hasn't, you get to see someone new react to it for the first time. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see if that because I mean, it, there is a professional aspect to it. Like, people get paid to do it, but it'd be interesting. Like, if we ever get uh, Blu-ray collections of specific streamers going through certain things, like uh, award-winning commentary tracks, or I, that would be interesting to see that kind of crossover. Because with streaming and like the advent of the the stream made for streaming movie, kind of entering the arena of the awards cycle and all of that stuff like there's definitely like those barriers are slowly coming down but i think there's something to be said about the the storytelling aspect and the skill with which video games can tell a story and you're already getting twitch used for films right and film watch events so that there can be a level of interaction with the audience especially with covid you know instead of a panel where you screen something then people talk you just do it on twitch yeah We've come to a weird place, but I'm, I'm liking it. <laughs> Do you want to move on to your favorite segment, Joel? And I'll put it right here. It is, it is time for another situational movie recommendation. I don't know that I have one prepared. Scott, did you have one? I ask as you bite into a Danish. <laughs> 
Favorite film food. Let's go with that. Not even a Danish. It's a red lobster cheddar biscuit. No, you didn't. That's yeah, amazing. You can buy boxes of the mix and make them. Oh, yeah. well, great. Now I'm sad. They're really good. <laughs> my eyes got Beyonce big. <laughs> when she fucked me good, she takes my ass to red lobster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have one prepared either, I'm afraid. Um, well, okay, but we, let's let's go with kind of on brand. Is like, what is your favorite coming of age tale with a sci-fi twist, <laughs> or just coming of age tale? It doesn't have to have a sci-fi twist. Kind of in this genre, I guess Star Wars is the the hacky one to say, right? Because technically, Luke comes of age as a farm boy going into space, of sorts. Yeah, Zeke actually had an answer. Let's hear it from him. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say um, two of uh, two answers. Um, first one would probably be super bad, just because. Okay. I, that's the. It's kind of. I don't know. I don't want to say the coming of age story that I lived because I was never a party or anything. But it was right. one that uh, it was. I think it was the first R-rated movie I saw in theaters. And, you know, a bunch of my friends and I all went. I think around someone's birthday, my birthday. I don't know, but we all saw that it was hilarious. Right. And you can relate to them in some ways and, and not other ways. So I, it was a coming of age story I saw when I was coming of age. So I think that one has a soft spot for me. The other one I'd go with would be book smart. Um, and I feel like that movie's incredible, a little bit more of a, a lived one, right. Kind of just like a, a nerdier guy in high school and college. And like, it's kind of like outside looking in at super bad, right. We're there. I don't know. They're trying to party in that one too, but book smarts kind of like, look, we've been these 4.0 students, all of our, all of our high school career. Like let's go out with a bang. Um, but it's just such a well done movie. It's funny. It's, I don't know. It's got everything. It's just a really good recent one that I, uh, that I really enjoy. And I might like more than super bad. And it kind of to the, where we started off with the podcast about coming of age stories that are, centered around female characters. I think this is one of those, not in the same way of like Super 8 or, um, you know, Stand By Me or something where it's a group of younger boys, but still it's, it's two females. And I think to that point too, it kind of gets to the, you know, I think it's kind of an up the chain thing, right? So you've got Spielberg and J.J. Abrams, you know, in control of a movie, a coming of age story. So they're going to tell one that they know and they can relate to. And right, there's not, unfortunately, there's not, I guess, as many female producers or filmmakers or directors getting the kind of notoriety in a lot of ways, right? So you're not seeing those stories, be, you're not seeing them as much, and sure, they're there, but you're not seeing them as much. So I think that's another reason why I like this one, because it's a coming-of-age story that you don't get all the time. As, as you were talking, I, I came up with a couple. Um, I think Accepted is definitely up there. That's a movie I saw kind of right before I was going to go to college. And it so perfectly encapsulates the kind of, it's on we, but it's not like the Wes Anderson kind of affluent on we. It's the idea that kind of crossroads in your life that you don't, I'm still in this place. Like I still identify with Justin Long's character where, where, where is my place in, in the world? How can I be creative? How can I not just be the dude doing the nine to five and on this track, you know, it, it's, it, it's so perfectly encapsulates kind of the desperate need to create a space for yourself. The kind of college cusp of high school, to college coming of age tale is, I guess it's something I, I relate to more strongly because I'm closer to that. I mean, than I was a little kid. Um, but that, that one still, every time I watch it, it just so strongly resonates with me. That kind of 
angst, that frustration about not where, knowing where you fit in and what, what the rest of your life is supposed to look like, you know? Um, you're supposed to figure that out in college. I went for six years. I still don't have it figured out, you know? And then one that's slightly less existential is The Sandlot. That, that movie is everything about how baseball feels. That's everything about how I wish summers would have gone like just a summer of all of this huge group of friends playing baseball getting into trouble and like building things and trying to get yourself out of this fucked up situation and there's also a borrowed nostalgia to the, the aspect of that film but it, it's that one i always felt like i i felt like smalls like that's that's me not, not a great athlete not, i'm the guy building legos i didn't have erector sets i wasn't smart enough for that but like i had legos and i built shit in my room and just that's the one I identify the most with. I, I love the movie, but it's also one that I, I always felt like Smalls. I don't know. So, something very, very personal about that film for me. I like that one. I was going to, not to, but to second that, I was, I was uh, also thinking Sandlot for those reasons, the nostalgia of the summer. Um, feel like I was always the guy who was trying to get the kids in the neighborhood to like, let's go make teams and play a Sandlot game. But no one did. No one wanted to do that. <laughs> So I don't know who I was, but like, yeah, just that, just thinking of it. Cause I, I was trying to think of, as you were talking about relating to that high school to college coming of age, I was trying to think of like which childhood coming of age story would it be. And I think also the Sandlot. Yeah. You know, we were 21 jump street is also like a really good coming of age. It's like, these are grown ass men, but it's also like that, that kind of portrayal of high school and those kinds of cliques and those kinds of bullies is very, it's, it's closer to what actual high school was like for me than any of the other like breakfast club or any of the, like I liked breath breakfast club. It, it, it's fucked up and it damages you. What about you, Tim? Uh, I think for me, it's uh it's teen wolf. Oh um, shit. And it was funny as I was kind of thinking of this, yeah, he missed That's out. That's a good one. I forgot. <laughs> um, but yeah, as I was thinking about it, like, like sort of why I liked it, and it's like I, I started noticing all the similarities to to Spider Man. You know, the idea of not. I don't think in, in that he's that picked on in Teen Wolf, but he's still kind of like a little bit of an outcast. Like, definitely not a cool kid, you know, and um, kind of doesn't yeah it doesn't really have a place and he finds out this you know this thing about himself that that makes him different and, and special and you know in some ways someone might say better than everybody else you know and um but then you kind of see that that you know like with spider-man the, the responsibility has to come into play and you know that he he kind of rides the weight for a while but it kind of like fucks things up and he's got to rein it in and you know it, it ends up kind of being more about you know, who he is, like, as a person, not just this thing. And, uh, you know, I mean, for me, it was definitely at a time when I was still young enough to believe that, like, hey, maybe this is something that actually happens. You know, maybe there are, you know, there is, you know, there may not already be superheroes, but maybe there's potential to be superheroes or to have things. And, you know, again, you know, I think this is why I I enjoy metaphor so much, because it's my way to kind of, like, look at these stories that I loved as a kid that I believed in, but in a mature way that, you know, kind of letting go of the, the idea of the, the supernatural aspect of it, but it's like, okay, but what can that represent, you know? And, but yeah, sort of seeing him kind of like learn that lesson. Like I always really, really liked that. I liked the way it's told and, 
you know, and, and maybe that was part of it too. Maybe I also did at a time before I really had access to comic books, you know, so maybe in a way it was kind of like a prelude to getting into superheroes. You know, I mean, I would see superhero cartoons, but, you know, it wasn't until I was like, you know, I had my own money and I was old enough to be able to go to a comic book store and buy comic books. So, you know, this was sort of my, my early a- access to that. Oh, here's just a regular guy who isn't all that great, but he's got this secret that he's going to keep from people. And, it, you know, I mean, he doesn't keep the secret very long. <laughs> he kind of goes Iron Man with that one. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, that definitely really, really clicked with me. And, you know, maybe in some ways to my detriment is kind of like, you know, yeah, like, like maybe someday I'll be great. Like something will happen to me. It'll be like, Oh, I have this thing that automatically makes me better. And I guess that's part of it too, is like, it's not just having something that's an advantage or makes you different. It's, it's kind of what you do with that, which, you know, took me a while to figure that part out. But, but at any rate, as a, as a child, I definitely enjoyed it. And, you know, I feel like in some weird way, probably it did, you know, shape my, my adulthood in, in some way, you know, and, and like I said, once, once kind of comics did kind of come into play and, you know, Spider-Man and his, you know, mythos definitely, you know, took the baton and kind of ran with it. But, but yeah, I think that, that may have been even like pre-comic book. That's one I haven't seen all the way through. I got to the point where he, he's all hairy and his dad knocks on the bathroom door and his dad goes, son, I think we need to have a talk. And I felt so seen because when I had started to grow body hair, that's how I felt. It's like, Dad, why didn't you tell me I was a werewolf? Like, why <laughs> am I so goddamn hairy? <laughs> like, it just, and that, I, I totally got that coming of age thing just from that one scene from that. That's such a great one. <laughs> well, and you, and it's funny, too, oh. that you say you've but, never seen it all the way through. Right. Because as, as a kid, I hadn't seen the first half of that film for right. like years because you my, my my father taped it from television so it was halfway through oh here's that movie team team you know team wolf record so i thought the movie started i think it's like when he's in the closet with her when they're doing seven minutes of heaven or whatever and it's like they're making out and he ends up like scratching her back like that was the beginning of that movie for me like i had no idea That's what crazy. else happened and i think I've seen the beginning once, maybe twice in my life. I should just fucking buy it and watch it so I can see the, how the whole thing actually plays out. Bring it to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that'd be, yeah, that'd be a good one. We've never done one where it's like, I've only seen half of this. <laughs> right, yeah. How does this movie start? What about you, Scott? I am having trouble dredging up. Like, I know I have one and I can't think of it. But I have another thankfully, like a serious answer. But the first not so serious answer is that Hermione Granger is the first time I felt like seen important as a bookish nerdy kid who always got really excellent grades and was kind of a know-it-all, except that I was also too shy to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Like, so for Hermione to have all those qualities except the shyness and then to be the second most important character in those books, right. and sometimes the most important was like, awesome but the proper answer nowadays is la la land really which is of course about adults who are adults Uh and technically came of age forever ago but it's about them navigating their way to what they want in life and also determining what they want and or not knowing what they want you know in a in a realistic adulthood that works really well people you know it's not traditional musical and the longer you go the more the traditional musical facade sort of fades away so you get the whole thing opens with a bunch of people dancing in traffic. You know, their cars are stopped and they all get out and dance with each other. And then 
the longer we go, the, there's plenty of music, but the more that sparkly sort of constructed reality just peels off layer by layer by layer. And what we are left with is two people struggling and working and having jobs and having real problems and real lives. And then at the end, they don't have, they do get a happy ending, but not together. And it's not the happy ending, you know, the one that was supposed to happen. And that, so much of that tallies with just, you know, knowing where you are and not knowing where you want to be or knowing where you want to be and not how to get there. And that's encapsulated so well in so many ways. And then at the end, when they both get, again, arguably very happy endings, but not together, not the happy ending we've been getting talked about through the whole film. That touches on a lesson that I needed to relearn about four times, but was that there are sometimes not wrong answers in life, right and wrong answers. There are just two different answers. I, you know, if you picked this college, you would have different colored shirts with a different logo on them, and you'd be at the bar with different named friends. But you wouldn't be sitting at that other, you know, the other college going, oh man, I should have picked that other college. Like you never, you never get to see the results of the other choice, right? Because the results of both choice are you have friends and you do things and you live a life and you have a job and you work and, and you're probably happy in between or amongst all those things, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah. La La Land is one of La the La things Land is your, uh, what is it? Robert Frost wrote less traveled poem. <laughs> sure. I was was I was really satisfied with the ending of that movie. It's not a movie that I terribly mm-hmm. enjoyed like all the way through, but I really liked that third direction, right? Yeah. They break he up and they're miserable. They're together, they're happy. Of what they break up and they're happy. Yeah, he paints a picture of what could have been, maybe, right. if they'd stayed together. And it's beautiful. And it's the last piece of constructed traditional musical we get. But then that all fades away and there's just him standing there under the light at his bar and her across the room next to her husband and they have to leave. And that's it. I really like that answer because I think a lot of coming of age movies are framed as like you're a kid and then there's this big leap and then you're at the next stage of your life. But I like that answer because like you said, as adults, you're still trying to figure it out. So I like your answer and then I like all of the things you said after the answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Zeke approved. <laughs> that turned out to be a really good situational question, Joel. Sometimes those are the best. And then sometimes we sit here for 45 minutes and don't think about anything. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that wraps up our Super 8 episode, I think. And that means that our next movie selector is Tim. Woo! Oh, yes. Tim, so I was wondering I forgot. for us. <laughs> to sort of round off my my favorites. I know we spent a bunch of time on the Matrix movies, so now I'm going to throw in my sort of other close second. So we're going to be doing Fight Club. Told you, Zeke. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, sure, I, was, I wasn't sure if you were going to end up going. So instead, we're going to watch every other Wachowski movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would be great, we're going to watch but... Bound and was it Assassins, I think they also did. We're going to watch Jupiter Ascending. Uh, Sense8. Yeah, Jupiter Ascending. We're going to watch Speed Racer. Oh, see, I do want to see that, actually. But that's it was fun. a story for another time, I think. So, yeah, you're ready yeah. to Fight Club. We're diving I have into, definitely yes. put off re-watching Fight Club in anticipation of you choosing it. Like, the second <laughs> that you had told me, or told us, like, months and months ago that that's what your plan was, I was like, oh, I can't yeah. watch Fight Club for however long. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and it's, it's I, I feel as though it's a nice um, counterpart to The Matrix, because... You know, in in 
in, in different ways. Like number one, because like with the matrix there, you know, within the matrix, everything is so stylized and it's all about sort of like these, these visuals, right. You know, you know, as an, as an art form, you know, and everyone's wearing black leather because it looks cool because why not? If it's a digital representation of yourself, you can wear whatever you want. Whereas fight clubs like the opposite of that, you know, it's like, you're not your khakis. It's just kind of like nothing matters, you know? And with, with the matrix being so much about like, you know, the idea of, of belief and, and choice. And then there's, you know, fight club, which is basically just like, you know, well, part of the same compost heap, you know? So I feel like those, those two films like have helped to keep me balanced as a person, you know, in terms of going back and forth where it's like, you know, yeah, like it is all just bullshit and nothing matters or, Oh no, it is. It's, it's kind of about belief and making your own choices and kind of what you were talking about with La La Land, you know? Yeah, there are, there are choices, but it's not a matter of like, you're the chosen one and you have to make the choice to save all of humanity. You know, it's like, just make a choice, whatever, you know, you're human. Um, But then again, there's also kind of fight club where it's like, well, no matter what choice I make, you know, we're all, we're all going to end up in the dirt. So we'll kind of, you know, and that was actually something I was thinking when you were talking about Mass Effect earlier, where it's like, wow, if these people are concerned, you know, and upset that their choices in a video game didn't affect the outcome, they're for a rude awakening when it comes to life itself. Yeah. Like, they're not going to be too happy. <laughs> I'm excited <laughs> so, to dive into so, yeah. of your, uh, your muses, I guess, should we say, because you've brought us yeah. some Aronofsky and you've brought us some Wachowskis and Fight Club is a one-off, but it it it's clearly you know the third pillar of your influences. Yes, yeah. so or, or or yeah, cinematically, yeah, definitely the third. Yeah, I don't and I don't know if it's of three or there could be more, but yeah, it's sure. definitely no, one yeah, of them. Not to, I mean, yeah. Spider-Man's got to fit in there somewhere, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. Well, yeah, and you know, and it's funny too because like with with Fight Club, it does you know I it's based on a book and I saw the film first, but it got me into reading Chuck Palahniuk's books, which is sort of a whole other rabbit hole in and of itself. So we can, we can get into that a little bit as well. Real quick as a teaser for just future Joel, is this previous to your new wave phase or after discovery Uh, of this was, this was when I was in college. It was sort of my, yeah, later on in college, I think my undergrad. Yeah, I think it, 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 I think it was maybe late in college too, because I think it definitely came in around the time when college was ending, and it was at that point of okay, you knew what you were doing for the next four years. Now, what the fuck are you gonna do? And so, Fight Club came in and says, "It doesn't fucking matter. You're all just fertilizer." Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which was helpful and hurtful in, in different ways and we so another another formative coming of age movie <laughs> right yeah exactly you know how we, we all we all deal with our how uh, yeah our place in the world yeah well and, and it's interesting too because it also fits i think i've mentioned this before kind of the uh you know again hearkening back to joss whedon um the difference sort of between buffy and angel you know that sort of you know, getting through high school and, and college era. And then Angel is very much about kind of like, you know, having, having a job and okay, how are you, how are you going to help the world? You know, how are you going to, you know, kind of make your way once you've kind of gone through that plan of, okay, life is what I'm doing around going to school. And it's like, what happens when you remove the school aspect of that? And it's just kind of like, you know, yeah, no one's going to, no one's got a curriculum for you, you know, at that point, no one has a syllabus, like go, go figure it out. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I tend to personally like angel more than Buffy, because that part I related to more when I 
because of when I watched it in my life, I was more in that stage. I was done with school and I was kind of that lost guy. Like how, how do I make a living? How do I, how do I live? You know, aside from just waking up and watching movies every day. So yeah, fight club addresses that from a whole different perspective. It's just like, <laughs> you know, fight and blow shit up. It's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> well, cool. I'm looking forward to that very much. Yeah. Thank you three for uh, joining me for super eight. It went over well. Yeah. I know it was kind of an yeah. out of nowhere pick. It's certainly, even for me, it kind of faded. I saw it, it was good, and then I put it away, and it was kind of just, that was it. I had nothing more to say, so it was, it was great to get those new perspectives and, you know, have you guys expand the film for me. Listeners, uh, we hope you'll join us next month for Fight Club, and until then, thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Did you know Movie Mumble has its very own Twitter account? Please follow us on Twitter at MovieMumbleNTG and tweet at us with questions, reviews, or recommendations of things you'd like us to watch next.